Blog Talk Radio. Diabetes Late Night. Please tune into that show. 
Our musical inspiration for August, Phyllis Hyman, was born in Philadelphia, but her professional career began at a nightclub in New York City when she was spotted by producer Norman Connors. That might, name might be familiar to people who love Gene Carn as much as I do. Here's a snippet from I'm Truly Yours, courtesy of Sony Music. <laughs> someone and you say, wow, wouldn't it be great to one day meet them? And then you do. And then to, to, to just make a, a bigger dream come true, you know, you click with them. And uh, I found her to be a big sister in the business and someone that I could go to for information, you know, anything from uh, contractual things to, you know, making decisions on how to move here and there and navigate. And she was always there. And she also uh, mentored me on the the do's and don'ts and, and how to uh, kind of avoid certain pitfalls and what have you. And so, you know, she, she was very open with her life and, um, and shared unconditionally. So tell us something she told you, like a tip she gave you, because she did – not only um, did she do a lot of records and perform all over, she also appeared on Broadway, but she sang jingles and did some acting. So I'm curious, like, what was one of the do's that Phyllis Hyman told you? Oh, there were so many. Um, 
I know that she was a big, uh, you know, a, 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 a huge, a huge believer in knowing your wealth, knowing your worth. And so, you know, her advice to me was always never, you know, uh, second or undercut yourself, second guess or undercut yourself. Always go for your worth. You know, and that when was you're, that, that was you know negotiating we, contracts and things like that. When you're negotiating contracts, or if someone calls you for a gig, or whatever the case may be, you know, don't be in a hurry to try to make sure you get the gig. Always, you know, take a moment and really, you know, read the fine print and whatever and in whatever form that comes, and know that you are worthy of what you're asking. You are worth it. And did her success in Broadway kind of um, inspire you to want to do some acting? Because you've appeared all over New York City doing countless musical theater productions as well as performing at nightclubs and around the world with different um, musical festivals. Well, you know, the thing is, I have um, I started out in, in my, with a clear vision of being a singer-dancer-actor because that's what I had been shown and that's what I had been taught. Uh, musical theater was part of my background uh, from high school, um, grammar school, high school, all, you know, all my life. So theater was something certainly that I was pursuing, but it certainly um, was confirmation that um, there were roles out there for me seeing Phyllis do what she did, you know, as a recording artist coming from the recording industry uh, first and then uh, into, into, um, onto the Broadway stage. So she certainly was an inspiration in that sense, but that uh, theater had always been something that I had pursued as well. Now, how did you tackle the, uh, the role of playing Phyllis Hyman? Because you did perform as her, I thought, in a, a musical based on the whispers. Right, I did. It was a musical called Thank God the Beat Goes On, as you know, uh, a, a nod to their hit single, And the Beat Goes On. And it was a, a play that told the story through the eyes of the custodian of a well-known, world-renowned theater, say, for instance, the Apollo. And the uh, custodian uh, uh, would would tell the story of how he remembered the whispers um, at that time having um, been in the business for over 40 years and they were coming back to the Apollo to have a big celebration and, you know, be honored. Uh, and obviously with life, um, uh, imitating life, Phyllis um, transitioned on the night of um, a big show that she had at the Apollo with the Whisper, so it kind of, you know, took took artistic license to use uh, what had actually happened, and so the show went all the way back to their start in Oakland and the talent shows and the, you know, folks who discovered them and managed them, and then you know what worked and what didn't, and as they became more successful, um, it was a well-known fact that with the Whispers and Phyllis Simon had become a really big. And, and, and successful ticket with many promoters of the, of the of that era. So if you had a Phyllis Hyman, you know, uh, Whispers uh, show going, you were going to sell out, you were going to do well. And so the Whispers and Phyllis not only became uh, dear friends um, within the business, uh, performing, you know, so much with each other, but also dear friends uh, just as family would be. So they were very close to her. She was very close to them. And, um, they they use that in the play, you know. They use them being on tour or going and doing shows and so on and so forth, and then witnessing some of the times when she may have been suffering from depression and you know those her behavior, and uh, ultimately it fed into the night she uh, committed suicide, which was a night that she was going to perform with them at the Apollo. 
And um, did you sing uh, several of her songs in that show? Oh, yes. Within the show, because it's told through the eyes of someone of a third party, there's, everything was dream sequence. So you went back, and there were young whispers, and then there were grown whispers, and then there were the few whispers. Um, there was a young Phyllis, and then there was – well, I played Phyllis from the beginnings all the way through. Um, and um, I think, you know, it made it – it was – I have to tell you the story of how I came to play it to make you understand what it was to play her. Um, Phyllis and myself and Nancy Wilson had been in um, Washington, D.C. performing two weeks before her death. Uh, it was a Father's Day weekend, so there were a lot of things going on. Uh, Phyllis was at the W, the Washington Hotel. Uh, Nancy Wilson was at the Blue Note, and I was doing another hotel ballroom uh, performance for another promoter there in D.C. And uh, we all knew where everybody was, and we had been in touch, and we had said, let's meet on Sunday, Father's Day, and have a brunch at what was then B. Smith's there in uh, Union Station. So we all showed up. Uh, Phyllis had been having a little rough time of the week. Uh, The promoters were a little concerned because she had locked herself in a room and was just moody and so on and so forth. And, um, and they did not know what to make of this behavior, but her team was there. And so they were able to make everything go as smoothly as possible. She, you know, obviously as a professional, she met her commitment and her obligation and did great shows, but she was in the mindset of, um, she said to me, well, don't worry about getting anything for me for my birthday because I won't be here. So, you know, when you're speaking like that, you know, you, and you say, Phyllis, come on, don't talk like that, so on and so forth. It's going to be fine, so on and so forth. So we all met on Sunday, and as we sat there at B. Smith, Phyllis read the paper at the table, and then finally she just said, you know, I'm not in the mood for a prefixed meal. I'm going to go down to Georgetown. I'm going to go to Houston's, and I just want, like, some, a piece of broiled fish with some sauce, you know, whatever. And so she left. So we called her. We put her in a car, and we called her team and told her she's left us. She's on her way to where she's going, and then I guess she'll get back to the hotel for her show tonight. So we did all did our respective shows on that Sunday night, went back to New York, and I think I must have been in New York about three days when I went by the Apollo to hang out with some musician friends of mine. When I, I was living out of state at that time, so when I would come home, I would make it a point to go by the Apollo on a Wednesday when they were doing amateur night because I knew I'd see a, 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 a whole mix of people at one time and kind of get my – you know, what's going on and my hellos and my hugs in. So I did that on Wednesday. And on Thursday or Friday, I spoke with one of her musicians. And I and we were talking about getting together and doing some writing. And he said to me, listen, I got to go. I'll call you back. The van is here to pick me up for rehearsal. And you know what Phyllis will do if we're, when you're late. So we had a good chuckle about that because Phyllis would let you know what time it was if you were late. She didn't like to waste time. So that was um, that was a Thursday, I think. And then on Friday, it might have been, I took off for the very first Essence um, Festival. And uh, on the way, uh, on my layover, I got a call from the Apollo, and they asked me, Allison, are you in town, still in town? They knew they had seen me on Wednesday. Um there's a show going on tonight with the Whispers, and um, Phyllis was supposed to perform, but we don't think she's going to make it, so are you available? And I can remember now hearing so much commotion in the background, but at that time, I didn't know what was going on. I just remember people saying, don't say anything, just hang up. Don't say anything, just hang up. If she's not available, just hang up. And that's what they did. They said, okay, we'll, we'll catch you later. I said, I'm on my way to, to, the, to the festival. So I hung up, and I got on my connecting flight, and by the time I landed in uh, New Orleans, uh, a friend of mine um, called me and said, Alice, Alice and Phyllis is gone. 
And I said, what do you mean? And she said, she's committed suicide. So that happened all during the time I was flying. This is what was, you know, happening. And they called right. me to come in and, and, and replace her. About a year to the date of that, they called me and asked me to play the role of Phyllis Hyman in the play. A year to that, to that month. And then we went on the road for about a year and a half, two years. And I I felt so honored to be asked, but I also felt Phyllis's spirit kind of saying, you're the one who's supposed to play me. Go ahead and do it. You know, I got a, I got an affirmation kind of from her that if anybody's going to do it and if they're ready to do this, go ahead and you do it. I want you to do it. Well, I and we got the blessings from her family. When you listen to her voice and her performances, that how 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 did you create that? Because I feel like you hear a lot of pain in her voice. You know, when I listen to it, there's just a sound. She has such a unique sound. What was it like for you to kind of put that on stage and try? What what essence were you looking for well, to convey when you were performing her? You know, with singers, it's funny. Um, everybody has something in their – well, a lot of singers have many different sounds in their voice that may uh, have the same qualities of different – of other singers. Um, some people have uh, – male singers will have a little bit of Stevie Wonder thing, you know what I mean, that they can call upon if they wanted to, you know, just put that in place. For me, I, and it's probably because I studied her as, a, as being a singer as a friend, even before we were friends, I have a lot of Phyllis Hyman undertones. I find it um, easy to, you know, kind of slip into her, um, her kind of singing, you know, her timbre. So it wasn't a problem for me to call upon um, recreating her sound or at least coming close to recreating her sound. She wasn't easy to copy by any means, but to bring that, bring the, bring the sound. But the emotion came from knowing her, knowing her in her ups and her, during her ups and her downs um, and knowing myself. You know, and the things that I had experienced and that we're continuing to experience as a singer in this industry, taking those things, combining them, as well as just the pain of knowing, I don't know why I'm doing this show, singing Phyllis Hyman songs. My friend is gone. Why is that? There's something wrong with that. My friend is gone. So when you combine that, your life experience, and then just the, the, the sad fact that we are doing a show and we're and it's inclusive of information that speaks into the death of the Phyllis Hyman. It just, you know, it, it, it always, and then when you hear the audience, the audience um, was, oh, we always played for a very vocal audience, and um, sometimes people would just call out, oh, Phyllis. You know what I'm saying? It just it just rang so true to them, the character portrayal. So I was glad that I was able to touch people, not to make them feel sad, but to know it, it, they know, to, to the realness, you know, as they say. Of it. Right. So well, you know, I did a lot of research and watched a lot of her interviews before this podcast, and I always mm-hmm. felt like she was very guarded. And you know, you've been really candid on this show in the past about living with diabetes. You're a woman who's had an amazing career in the industry. You know, Phyllis did talk about some of the pressures and how the pressures of just being in the entertainment industry kind of could play havoc with not only your mental health but physical health. I'm wondering from your own personal standpoint, Allison, what's it like to be a woman in the entertainment industry uh, and also dealing with a health challenge of living with diabetes? 
Well, being a woman in the industry, and then for me, a woman of a certain age, which also Phyllis was something that she was coming into, you know, this is a very unforgiving industry. Um, You have to really fight your hardest fight ever just to hold on to any type of footing or positioning in the industry, regardless of your body of work. Um, I don't think I'm, I'm not, I'm I'm a lot closer than I have been to the things that I envision for myself and the, the, the you know, levels of success that I'd like to achieve. But it's been a long and is a long journey. I see things coming uh, uh, into fruition that I've been working on and praying on for a very long time. And you would think that they may have come uh, sooner, but I believe everything comes when it's supposed to and that I feel blessed that I have the ability to still pursue them but it's this is a rough industry you know and it, and, and it would lead you to believe that once you're past a certain age you're past your prime um they would lead you to believe that what you do um can it can easily be replaced and it and it can't um and uh you get to see a lot of people gaining the accolades especially as the industry has changed to um uh, a place where now it's about followers and numbers and clicks and likes, and that's what your uh, success and notoriety is based on. And so, therefore, there are a lot of people who can garner numbers, you know, based on social media, but that doesn't mean that they actually have a God-given talent or that they have something that would deserve the type of um, or warrant the type of uh, notoriety that they have been given. Everybody has their chance. Like everybody has their shot at the 15 minutes. But, I mean, I'm sure you listen to some of the music and some of the, um, I won't call them necessarily artists, but some of the um, characters, <laughs> for lack of a better term, that are in the limelight, you know, and um, they're, they're just because they are internet success or so on and so forth. So it's very difficult being a woman in the industry, but you keep doing it because you know why you're here. If you know what your purpose is for, then your passion and what your passion is, then you're able to uh, go forward with it. And right, well, with living with diabetes. Uh, oh, yeah, talk about the diabetes side of it. Like, how has that been managing? All I can say is it's cuckoo and. <laughs> All I can say is that it's cuckoo and crazy, and I don't have time for it, and I fight it every day to get to the place where I'm I'm not living with a, an, an illness that I can manage, but it's an illness that you can, according to you, what your uh, your type of diabetes, you can be without it. We don't and have to have diabetes. With that regarding, what's the biggest challenge with that regarding what you do for a living, or what's one of the challenges? The biggest challenge really for me is my uh, my schedule. My physical schedule does not coincide with the schedule that a person would need in order to um, get their meals in and get their medications in in a timely fashion. And it will. It, I, sometimes I find myself doing well for a couple of weeks, and then there'll be a week where it's just not as on point as possible, which obviously changes your numbers and your readings, and that can be dangerous. I work hard at trying to find um, a way to be on top of it, just like I know I have to prepare for a show, and we've got to have a certain outfit, or we've got to put on our makeup, or get our music together. I must, uh, you know, address the diabetes as such because I don't want to have complications. I want to be diabetes-free. So um, I, I, I took on a campaign with myself to lose weight. You know, weight loss is a, is a, is a real issue with it. And I took off 60 pounds, which did, which did wonders for what I needed to do. And I just I want to be an inspiration to other, others who struggle with it. Because Ooh, it's la, la. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. We were sitting, we were sitting around. Uh, you are an inspiration. Yeah. Allison? So I'm just, oh. I'm just trying. I'm just trying. I'm here. I love it. All right. Well, two more things, um, and congratulations on that weight loss. We were, we were enjoying that, and thing, and we're wishing you all the success. Uh, let's just talk about fashion quickly. That, her fashion, if you look at those old videos and things, mirror your fashion at the same time. Do you think it's ever going to come back? Those hats, those big earrings, those big shoulder pads, that whole look, it was kind of fabulous. Well, you know, hats never go out of style. Earrings can be what they want to be. Shoulder pads, we're not too sure about. But we didn't think they were coming back when Phyllis wore them because Phyllis wasn't the first one to wear them. If um, Not if you remember, but if you if you remember um, your, in your heyday of Hollywood, the women like Joan Crawford, and Betty Davis and all those dolls, Mae West, they were wearing big shoulder pads back then. They went away, and then they came back. So you never can say never, but I know as far as hats and crowns and things of that and jewelry will always kind of be able to uh, to to go and do what it's going to do and uh, what have you. That, that is why I believe when I came out, um, when I finally released my first mu- my first bit of music into the mainstream, people compared Phyllis and I uh, a lot. You know, we're both tall, statuesque women who were balladeers at the root, although we could sing dance music. And, uh, and our fashion, the fashion sense was very close to what Phyllis was about. As much as uh, Def Jam wanted to keep me in the, you know, just, just on the edge of the hood, you know, and, and being uh, hip-hop and so on and so forth, they still had to go ahead and let me be what I was when they discovered me, which was someone who was going for class and style and elegance. That was my whole thing. But, you know, being I a jazz singer signed to a, to, a, to, a, to a rap label, you know, we had to, we had to, we had to split the difference. And I think you accomplished that. Allison, that's our special guest, Tabuli, the world's um, most popular, famous diabetes alert dog. He's coming up later in the show with his wonderful owner, Elizabeth Von Gallagher, and we're going to be talking about their book. But he's barking because he's letting us know that we've got our upcoming Collar Greens Health and Wellness Day in Central uh, Central Farm Markets in Virginia coming up in, in September. Steve Burke's biggest outreach event of the year, and you're going to help us right now in a fun new way to learn more about diabetes. You're in the hot seat, Allison Williams. Here's your question to uh, help us okay. raise some diabetes IQ. What percentage of bipolar pas- uh, patients have prediabetes or diabetes? Is it A, 0%, B, 25%, or C, 50% or more? What do you think? I wish you could repeat the question. If you could just, you could just repeat the question. You got it. What percentage of bipolar patients have prediabetes or diabetes? 25%. Is that your final answer? I said, yeah, my answer was 25. Uh, Actually, 53% of the patients have. um, Really? 53% of bipolar patients have either prediabetes or. Diabetes and coming up right after we play our next Phyllis Hyman song, I'll be talking to Dr. Patricia Farrell about uh, more about mental health and diabetes and uh, learning more also about sleep problems. Thank you, Allison Williams, for going Diva on Diva with us tonight and celebrating our musical icon, Phyllis Hyman. You're the best. It was my honor. Thank you you so much. 
uh, and we're playing this song for you because you do a lot of jazz. You're, you and uh, you know Phyllis Hyman, as I mentioned earlier, had a huge Broadway hit with Sophisticated Ladies, where she was performing music by Duke Ellington, along with co-stars Gregory Hines and Judith Jamison. She was nominated for a Tony Award, but then she also won the Theater World Award for Best Newcomer. We're going to play a song that I love. That's a huge hit on the Quiet Storm. Bet you guys, uh, bet you by golly, wow, by Phyllis Hyman. Thank you. There's a spark of magic in your eyes Candy land appears each time you smile Never thought that fairy tales come true But they Bipolar, and I, or being bipolar, mm-hmm. and I wanted to know what your thoughts were on that. 
Well, you know, when you think about, and it was just um, discussed a little bit before, when you think about the entertainment industry and the lack of, of structure in your life because of the nature of the industry, one of the things that you're going to be in to really cut back on or that you have no control over is the amount of sleep that you're going to be able to get and also the amount of stress that you're also going to be put under. Now, we know that those are two things that affect not only your mood, but also your glucose level. Stress raises it, and if you don't get enough sleep, that is going to cause one of your body's hormones called cortisol, which is the stress hormone, that's going to cause it to go and clamp down on your insulin, your natural insulin, and it's going to cause your glucose level to go up. So actually, it's very important for anybody with diabetes to maintain a normal stress level, as normal as they can, and also to maintain a normal seven hours sleep every night. It's, absolutely, it's medically important. I mean, you, you do yourself a world of favor if you take care of those two things, in addition to what Ms. Williams had said, the weight control. That's also very important. So we can you know. catch up on, uh, Dr. Patricia, can you catch up on sleep? You know, like Allison's saying, like she flew to New Orleans and she, you know, when you do a tour, you're gone like two weeks in advance, right. you know, for a while. And your hours could be really screwed up. But can can she catch up on sleep? So she had to do three hours to go perform in Japan. Can she sleep for 14 the next day and kind of even it out? Or is that uh, a myth? No. You might be able to do that once in a while, but you can't do it on a regular basis because you go into what's known as sleep debt, and that means that your body is now accumulating a need for something that you can't supply. You could maybe if you went a week and you had a, a pretty bad week and you didn't get your seven hours every night, maybe on the weekend you could make up a little bit, but you can never really catch up. So we know actually from studies they've done with shift workers that shift workers, because of the lack of sleep and the lack of scheduling of normal sleep, suffer more physical illnesses than anything. And the World Health Organization has said that shift work should be determined or should be called a carcinogen. Now, is, is that mind-blowing when you think about sleep? Yeah. I mean, it's it's phenomenal. So it's it's. Um, I'm grateful they're paying more attention to it because I I do agree with that. I think that we need to. It really does have an adverse effect on our health. So I'm, I'm glad absolutely. that people are beginning to get into it. I do want to get back to this uh, issue though before we move on to sleep because I want to talk about that and go back to Phyllis Hyman for a minute and some of the mental health issues she was dealing with. You and I talked sure. right before the podcast that. Uh, bipolar might have been confused with high and low blood sugars. You know, she could have been living with diabetes, and if she was, some of the behaviors that have been well-documented, her diva-type behavior, uh, really right. could have been much more physical than mental. What, what are your thoughts on that? I know you have a friend who knew Clive Davis and was kind of around uh, Phyllis at that time, because Clive Davis right. at one point was managing her. What, what what insight can you bring to the table with that? And also tell us what bipolar is to begin with, because I think there's a lot of confusion well, around that. Bipolar, term. It, 
yeah, bipolar is an illness that actually can have two different forms. One is where you're depressed most of the time, but then you will hit one manic episode where you'll stay up maybe for three days in a row and you'll have incredible energy and you feel very creative and you may even get, um, you, you lose sense of reality. You begin to believe things that aren't so. That can be one. So don't forget, she was suffering from depression. And so they're saying that maybe she's hitting these spikes. Maybe she's got bipolar. The other one is the other form of bipolar. You are mostly high and occasionally you get one of these lows where you're really depressed. But most most of the time you would be high. Now, when we know that people have diabetes and and maybe it's undiagnosed diabetes that could go on for a while i mean some people don't even they feel fine they're not going to go to the doctor and get a blood test and say i i think maybe i have diabetes they you know some people don't go to the doctor at all so what she could have been suffering was really a diabetes diabetes related illness depression with occasionally some spikes and because of the spikes they said oh you know she's got to be bipolar well i'm sorry this lady probably never got a good night's sleep because she was probably stressed she had to go perform she was constantly having people make demands of her you know she must have felt like even though she was successful that her life wasn't her own and you know and she and then if she'd hit the depression she'd say I'm not appreciated, nobody loves me, nobody cares if I live or die, and now you start getting into this suicidal slide, and I think that's what happened to her. It was just, just a terrible tragedy, you know? Um, well, and I, I think add that, to that, that I think she was in an industry that kind of supported it, because as long as someone has time and brought that emotion out on stage with the performances, and you could see through any of the videos that are shot of her singing live, that she was a, kind of a phenomenon with her, the emotional, the emotion she pulled out through a concert, that if she were able to do that, that anyone would just let her have this kind of behavior without really asking for more because she was technically doing her job. So, I mean, if she right. didn't get out of bed like Allison said for three days, but she came to the stage and killed it on stage, people would just kind of say, oh, that's just still right. So she wasn't... You know, we're just right. imagining what it could have been. But I, I could right. see how the world around her kind of supported this behavior. And, of course, you know, everyone loves to use that terminology for divas. You know, like, uh, and, you know, she's exactly. well documented for having huge issues with her career. I think she had a lot of disappointments throughout her career, not just with uh, being overlooked by her record label. She mentioned that many times just, you know, being sidestepped on several major opportunities that could have really been a huge change for her. She also was trying to do cosmetics. She had her own fashion line. I mean, at some, you know, she really had her hand in many things, and I think right. when, she, when she got on the other side of the table, it had to be difficult. Now let's just talk about uh, Clive Davis before we get off this because there's a lot of documented um, interviews about the fact that people thought that they, uh, Clive Davis couldn't take her anymore, got rid of her, and then went right to Whitney Houston, and that Whitney Houston got Phyllis Hyman's career. I have to, I don't, I think it's kind of crazy, but I just want to know uh, from your yeah. friend's standpoint what you could share about that. I, I don't know, because I have spoken to my friend 
who hasn't told me about Phyllis Hyman specifically, but has said that Clive was someone, if you had talent and you were willing to work and you were not, and this was an absolute must, and you were not a drug addict, he was there for you. He would help you with your career. A very famous person came back to him and said, look, I want to sing again. I want to perform again. And Clive said, not on your life. You're a drug addict. I, I won't have anything to do with you. So I don't think that he dropped her. I think it was something was happening, and I'm not sure what was happening, but I know that he was very respectful, and he really, I mean, even at the end for Whitney, he was there for her. Well, I, he I was just wanted to say, Dr. Putrich, I just want to say the man worked with Janis Joplin, Phyllis Hyman was well documented for alcohol and drug abuse, specifically cocaine. Right. And then, right. you know, whatever you want to think about Winnie Houston, those those stories have come out multiple times. So it wasn't. Right. I mean, I don't want to say he only worked with sober acts because I don't believe that at all. And some well, people no, say but that. there are some people. Phyllis got, there out, some people... Phyllis got away easy from it versus Whitney Houston that he really manipulated Whitney yeah. into some kind of what she became. So, I mean, this all goes to what Allison is saying. I hate to do hearsay, but tonight was the night to just kind of expose some of the issues that could have supported the fact that she really was struggling and she was really in a difficult environment in which to seek help because of what was going on around her. Yeah, no doubt in my mind that she was in in an incredibly difficult career. She was an incredibly talented woman but the career was crushing for anyone. I mean, you ha- you could be very strong, very talented, and very determined, but there are forces over which you have no control, and they will not listen to you. So, uh, you know, she was struggling against a lot of things. It wasn't just the diabetes, but it was the entertainment field, and it was her wish, and I understand this, her wish to do more because she probably felt, look, I have a lot of talent. Let me use all of it. Why not? I mean, I I have to respect her and and hold her in in great regard for that and and what she fought through and how even if she had bad days, she came back to perform. She did her job. So we can't say anything, you know, negative about her. So maybe she was difficult some days. Aren't we all? And if and if we went through a couple of days that where we couldn't get sleep and our sugar was going up and down and sideways, what would be what would we be like? Would we be kind and gentle little sweethearts? I don't think so. So you know, I have to say there was a lot going against her. She had a lot that in her, but the things that were going against her just became too much. It was overwhelming. And it's a tragedy that you can just, you know. So, I mean, I'm, I'm thinking right, of her, her. I'm thinking of her. We're going to take a quick break, Dr. Patricia, and come back and do four and four with you. You've got four minutes to answer four questions about sleep, insomnia, and stress. What you don't know can hurt you. You'll be right back after this musical break. But first, we're going to play another song from Phyllis Hyman's first album, Somewhere in My Life featuring the title track produced by Barry Manilow. Here's Somewhere in My Lifetime, courtesy of Sony Music. Let's listen. Somewhere in my lifetime I have kissed your lips 
Chocolate Diaries Late Night. I'm your host, Mr. Diva Bedick. And it's time to play 4 at 4. We've got four minutes with four questions with the author of Sleep Insomnia Stress. What you don't know can hurt you, Dr. P- Patricia Farrell. How's, all right, Dr. P- uh, Patricia, I've got my timer. Okay. Pretty Go. quiet. <laughs> I'm going to ask you four questions. Uh, after each question, you have one minute or less to answer. Ready for your first question? Okay. What position should you sleep in? Ooh, this is a good question. This is tough. What oh, that's oh. What in? position? Actually, I just did a, I just did an article for uh, Medium.com on that today. Actually, the best position that research recently has shown is on your left side, and the reason is because when you sleep, your brain does something incredible, and that is that it flushes out all of the garbage from the day, and it does its best work if you sleep on your left side. All right. Uh, Next question. What kind of light is the worst for the bedroom? What kind of light is the worst for the bedroom? Oh, blue light. Any kind of blue light. That means uh, computers or cell phones or anything else. Blue light is one thing that will keep you awake because somehow the brain responds to that. And if you want to do anything, you can get a special filter for your computer screen or you can wear a pair of special computer glasses. But blue light is the enemy. All right, two more questions. What's the connection between creativity and dreams? What's the connection? Actually, some people say that you can do creative dreaming. In other words, before you go to sleep, you set yourself a scenario, a task in your sleep, and then you begin to work on that. Now, there's a lot of very famous authors who have said that it was a dream or their sleep, that, like Stephen King, who has said he wrote Carrie after falling asleep on an airplane, and then he wrote it on a cocktail napkin. Other people, um, I'm forgetting who it is now, but um, the fellow who invented okay. the you carbon... Your time's almost up. What's the, okay, uh, go you ahead. talked about this earlier, the link between diabetes and sleep, but what is the, what's the connection for you since you mentioned to me earlier you are living with diabetes? What have you noticed uh, how your, your diabetes management is with the amount of sleep you get? Well, certainly um, with inadequate sleep, when you wake up in the morning, your um, level is going to be up because your, normally your cortisol level will be higher in the morning. But if you haven't slept, what's going to happen is it's going to combat your normal insulin and it's going to make your your glucose in the morning go up. So you don't wake up in a good mood in the morning generally if you haven't had a good night's sleep because your glucose level is out of whack. All right. Well, time's up, uh, Dr. Patricia. Great job with that. Four at four. With, uh, okay. have got to find out more about the book. Where can they learn more about your book? I want to just say one more time. Uh, well, if you go to stress, what you don't know can't hurt you. Okay, you can go to my website, which is drfarrell.net, or you can go to Amazon and look for Dr. Patricia A. Farrell, and my author's page is there, and it will give you all of my books. And, of course, the latest is Sleep, Insomnia, Stress, What You Don't Know Can Hurt You, and believe me, that is the truth. All right, well, we're coming back. When we come right back, we're going to learn, we're going to shed some blue light, Dr. Patricia, on gastroparesis okay. with my next guest. But right now, 
we're going to go back to our musical inspiration, Phyllis Hyman. She started Spike Lee's film School Days, performing the jazz tune B1 in 1988. Here's um, I Don't Want to Lose You, courtesy of Sony Music. Let's listen. I don't want to lose you. I love you as you are. I don't want to lose you. I could Back to Diabetes Late Night. I'm your host, Mr. Diva Bedix. My next guest is a single mother living with a diabetes complication that's often overlooked. Well, we're going to shed some blue light on diabetic gastroparesis with my guest, Stacy. Welcome to the show. Here's Stacy. I want to pronounce it right. Skunkweiler? Hello, Stacy. Oh, yeah. Did I pronounce it right? Thank you for having me. You did. It's all right, well, a lot of people have no idea what uh, diabetic gastroparesis is. I do because when I used to run a diabetic club meeting in New York, we had a woman living with type 1 diabetes who would explain it to everyone in the group on a monthly basis. So I'm interested to have you uh, tell our listeners a little bit about it. you got to speak a little louder. We're not hearing you. Okay, can you hear me now? Yeah, this is better. Basically, it means muscular weakness or partial paralysis of your stomach. You're still, I'm just going to interrupt you one more time because you're still coming out a little bit, uh, it's difficult to hear. Is it better? A little closer to the phone? Yeah, now. Good. That's better? Yes. Okay. So, that's Diabetic gastroparesis is um, it's muscular weakness or partial stomach, and that means that your food does not move through your stomach like it's supposed to. And unfortunately, and so, that can cause. Okay, go ahead. Sorry. No, so so yeah, what happens if it can't move through your stomach? That's correct. It either doesn't move at all for some people or it just moves very, very slowly. And what's your life like with that? (laughs) I I can imagine that would be very uncomfortable. It is very uncomfortable because um, a lot of times, like, if you, um, you can get super full with barely eating anything and you get this extremely bloated feeling um, which can make you very nauseous it it can make a lot of people vomit Um, sometimes after I've eaten just a small amount my stomach blows up and it looks like oh my gosh I look like I'm pregnant again Um, it's but it's just it's extremely uncomfortable Um, and you you just never know when it's going to you know impact you when it's going to strike and you're going to have a a flare of it how were you initially diagnosed with it? Because that seems like it could have, you might have thought it was food poisoning for a while. You know, it seems like it could be a confusing thing to diagnose. 
confusing thing, I think. Um, I actually had digestive problems for several years and um, just kept going back to my doctor saying, okay, look, um, I have a lot of other health problems and I take a lot of medications and I'm like, okay, is it this medicine that's causing me to be nauseated? Something's wrong. I feel sick all the time. Um, so we would just, you know, try switching to different medicines and it seemed like, you know, for a while, sometimes I would be okay, but then I would start to get sick again. And we're like, okay, maybe we need to try a different medicine. Um, but the best way for people to be diagnosed, um, there are a couple of different medical tests that people can, that the doctors can do. Um, the first one is called an upper endoscopy. And that's where they take um, a scope with a camera and a light on it and go down through your throat and look into your stomach. And um, with that test, what they're looking for is undigested food in your stomach. They, they do the test, of course, after a fasting period. And if there is undigested food in your stomach, then that can give them a positive diagnosis. Um, another test that they do is the um, gastric emptying test. And with that test, you eat a little bit of food that has some um, uh, radioactive isotopes in it, which is like some scrambled eggs and toast um, or oatmeal if you're a vegetarian. Uh, and they will do x-rays of your stomach um, one hour after you've eaten two hours and four hours to see how long it takes for the food to move through your stomach and digestive system. And uh, that's both of those ways. I want to I make the connection with my audience to diabetes. So when were, you, when were you first diagnosed with type 1 diabetes and when did you first start to, how much time lapsed before you started to see these symptoms? Uh, actually, I'm a type 2 diabetic. I was oh, diagnosed... Yeah, Yes, I am. Um, I was diagnosed about 13 years ago, um, and I started having problems with the gastroparesis issues probably about uh, eight to ten years ago, I'd say, but got really, really bad um, two years ago. And I just was, at that point, I was set up, and I just said to my doctor, we've got to do something else. And it was at that point that he said, okay, let's send you to a gastroenterologist and see what they think is going on with your stomach since we've tried changing all these medications and all these other things to make your stomach better. And at that point, Stacey, you were really kind of vomiting a lot, right? I mean, is that what drove you to there? Because yes. I'm just, you know, yes. I think we all put heartburn a lot and nausea and we don't really think about it, but it seems to me like what you're discussing would be something like chronic vomiting that would really kind of push me to want to take one of the tests you discussed earlier. Yes, definitely. And what was going on with your diabetes when this was happening? Was it, uh, I would think it would be such a challenge to manage both of these conditions. It's very difficult to manage because, um, as you know, you know, your blood sugar is dependent upon when your food makes it through your system and how it interacts with you know, when your insulin is made and things like that, or if you're taking insulin, you know, you take your insulin depending on, you know, what your doctor's directions are. Or insulin starts working before your food gets there and you end up bottoming out or vice versa, your food's going to get there before your uh, 
insulin is going to start working, and so you're just you're basically doing a roller coaster ride, and that is not fun at all. Which anybody that's got diabetes who has their who doesn't have it under control knows what that feels like. So to add the the vomiting and the nausea and all that stuff on top of it is just that much more. And what was one of the things that has helped you the most with living with diabetic uh, gastroparesis? Um, I think educating myself as best as I could. I I just have really dug in on the Internet and things like that, Um, looking for information, looking for other people that have got the same thing, looking for ways to, you know, find relief or to manage the illness. Um, That's helped me a lot. I actually, um, by doing that, helped educate my primary care doctor um, on gastroparesis, which he was really, really thankful for because he didn't have the time to try to study up on it. And he had a couple of patients that had it. Um, so, yeah, that that's probably been the biggest thing for me. It's just education. And it seems to and me the, that there is a community out there around it because you're working with MedicineX.com, and, and they're right. kind of helping build a community, right? So, um, did I yes, get that right, MedicineX? So, uh, yes. that community, what, what do you find at that community that there's, I mean, I would think if something happened like this to me, I would feel like I was all alone. And number two, just getting out of bed, I feel would be a challenge. So I, uh, having community as it is with Divabetic, and we found that I would think, uh, number one, just feeling like you're not alone is a big deal. But I'm wondering how, how they've inspired you, encouraged you to kind of keep going on with your life, especially with your children. Um. I think um, just having a positive, that positivity of having people who can come around you and say, hey, I've been there, or hey, I, I, this is what I did. You know, you might want to try this for you. Um, and also, you know, I think us helping people too makes us feel a little bit better too. So whenever I've learned things that have worked for me, I've been able to share those with people within the Medicine X community. Um, and and other diabetic gastroparesis sufferers as well, not just on the Medicine X community. All right. Well, thank you for being on the show and shedding some light on gastroparesis. I think it's something that we're going to cover in one of our upcoming Diabetes Mystery Podcasts, which we do every September. Uh, right now we're going to take a quick break, listen to some more of Phyllis Hyman, and then we'll be right back learning more from a woman living with type 1 who's doing a lot also to engage the community and help people cope with other issues uh, as cro- with chronic conditions. So let's listen to um, I Ask in courtesy of Sony Music. Thanks for being on the show, Stacey. It ain't like that. Tonight, with lots of guests coming up, including the author of the new book, Tabuli, 
Um, I don't have the title in front of me, but I know it's a Diabetes Alert Dog, plus the owner of that amazing world-famous Alert Dog, and Queen Diva, who's performing at Psilocybin in the New York in, uh, New York area, raising awareness and uh, for mental health issues, as well as helping keep Phyllis's legacy alive. But right now, we're going to talk to another wonderful woman who recently co-founded a new organization called Our Odyssey to connect young adults impacted by rare or chronic conditions with social and emotional support in the hope of improving the quality of their life. Please welcome to the show, Christina Wolf. Hi, Christina. Hi, Matt. Hi, everyone. I'm, we've been trying to get you on the show for like three months now, so I'm so excited to have you on the show <laughs> and learn more about what you're doing with Odyssey. But before we do that, Christina, uh, I'd love to hear more about your experiencing uh, from diagnosis to diva. So tell us a little bit about when you were first yeah. diagnosed and what that's been like. Yeah, no, thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here to have finally worked it out with the summer schedule. Um, so diagnosis was a long time ago. I was six years old. Um, that day changed my life forever. I think that's the day that changes a lot of our lives as people with diabetes. Um, you know, my parents had to kind of swallow a lot at that point. Um, and I don't think I quite realized the depth of what had happened to me at that point. Um, but what I did know was that from the diagnosis, because I was stuck in a hospital for over a week, strung to IVs from legs and arms and everywhere, that I wanted to make a difference for people with diabetes one day. Um, and so I made the commitment to go through my education to work on curing the disease. So that was a big, bold statement I made when I was six years old, right when I was diagnosed. Um, started med school after college, wound up dropping out as I learned more about how health policy was going to impact our healthcare system here in the United States and decided to pursue public health and clinical research instead. Um, and so my career and background has paired my interest in health economics with clinical research. So I've kind of help, helped um, lead several diabetes drugs to market. I have been on clinical trials. I've advocated for other patients in clinical trials. And I think that's kind of where my, my patient advocacy has positioned itself. Um, so, Christine, let me interrupt I want to interrupt you for a second and talk about because, you know, every day I'm reading in the paper or on Twitter about all these people with type 1 diabetes who are dying because they can't afford their medications. Bernie Sanders said on the, at the Democratic, um, the last debate, how he took a caravan to Canada. You've been on, you know, you've been on both sides now. What do you think is going on? I mean, how, you know, you've been involved in clinical trials. Why do you, why do you, how do you react to these soaring prices in insulin? And also, like, is there ever going to be a cure? Or are we just going to have more medications to help manage the condition? Yeah, no, it's a great question. Um, I think there are a lot of folks that are wondering the answers to the question, including myself. I can tell you kind of what my thoughts are based on what's currently going on. Um, 
And from my perspective, based on what I know, some of the potential solutions, so it's all rooted in policy. Um, the, the soaring prices, they're, they're soaring, they're only going up, not, not, because, not only because of inflation, but also because there isn't a policy in place that prevents pharmaceutical companies skyrocketing the prices. Um, it's not just the pharma companies that are involved in this, though. And that's what everyone, I think, is failing to understand. Um, there's a completely other side of the spectrum that's not being addressed, and that is health policy, which is rooted in, right now, what is the Affordable Care Act. Um, <clears throat> there are a lot of aspects to that policy that could put more of a sliding scale implementation. That's what I would do if, if I could develop my own policy. Um, I don't want to get too much into politics right now, but um, I think there are a lot of sides that have gone unseen and a lot of sides from a kind of general population perspective that perceive pharma as the bad guy when really they're investing a lot of dollars and a lot of effort into finding a cure. I do think we're going to have a cure in the next 20, I would, I'm going to say 25 years. Because when I was diagnosed at six years old, I was told I would be cured by the time I was 18, and that didn't happen. So I think 25 so years. I, I think it's interesting it because I, I think you sound so optimistic, and I was thinking surrounded by it every day and, and being in clinical trials and working on both sides of this equation that it would be a little bit uh, disheartening. And obviously, like you see the outpouring on social media around wanting to change the prices. So, I, I mean, I appreciate your candor with it. I, I didn't, you know, we weren't planning to talk about that, but when I heard you mention it, I wanted to uh, discuss it. But I do want to get back to our honesty because I think what Stacey brought up was so important. I mean, here she is dealing with diabetic gastroparesis. That would be a challenge to live with every day until diagnosis. And even hearing her speak, it seemed like it was still challenging even after diagnosis with medications to juggle that. Your, your new yeah. organization, Our Odyssey, is really going to be trying to help people, younger people specifically, uh, grapple with these decisions and, and really find some joy in their lives. So tell us a little bit about that. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you for the opportunity. Um, so as kind of a young professional, young adult, um, you know, I think all throughout this show, we've heard about some of the different kind of comorbid mental health conditions that can come about through having or living with diabetes, including comorbid gastroparesis. So Stacey, I, you know, I'm with you. I do not, I was fortunate enough to not have gastroparesis, but I have a group through our Odyssey of other young women who also have other comorbid conditions with lupus and other autoimmune diseases. Um, so what our Odyssey is, is an organization focused on helping young adults dealing with rare or chronic conditions, find community and connection, just like Stacy was talking about. Um, 
so the importance of community and finding purpose and belonging has really kind of sprouted about in a lot of the lack of holistic health that's been made available for patients over the years. Um, the CDC has implemented Healthy People 2020, which has a big focus on mental health. However, of the 43 objective areas that have focused on mental health, only three of those have reached their, their results. Um, and a lot of that is because of lack of buy-in. And that's a part of the reason our Odyssey was born. So increasingly, you know, we're seeing young adults specifically fall victim to feeling like they have to compete with their peers. They can't even walk, walk into a classroom, for example, even if they don't have a chronic condition. They can't walk into a classroom without feeling like they have to compete with them or compare themselves to them. And when we're in a situation when you feel like, you know, you, you can't present yourself unless you're going to win, that, you know, there's a huge health implication there, especially when you're dealing with a chronic condition. And so that's why our Odyssey was born, is so we can really kind of provide a safe haven for vulnerability to connect with people like ourselves who deal with the same struggles socially and emotionally. And that comes with financial planning, making decisions around career planning, family planning, things like that. I love it. I think it's amazing. I wish you good luck with it. So tell us about what the website is for our Odyssey. Where will we be able to find out more about it? Yeah, no, thanks so much. Um, so www.ourodyssey.org is our website. We are still, we are, so we're a registered 501c3 nonprofit organization. None of our profits go to any of us. This is a passion project. Um, we are full-time working young adults with other jobs. Um, this is something that is something that we're very passionate about and so all the funding goes towards our meetups and arranging for the connection of these young adults. I uh, appreciate Stacey, the opportunity, you know, Max. Do you think when you were first diagnosed uh, back in the day that you would have enjoyed reading about a girl the same age living with type 1 diabetes who found a wonderful dog and uh, <clears throat> that dog became her alert dog and helped her through all the challenges as well as uh, successes in her life. would be an exciting story, right, to read in the hospital when you were first diagnosed? No, no doubt. I think, were you talking to Stacey or me, Max? I mean, I'm Christina. sorry, Christina. I was looking at something else. But I, I'm going to be bringing up the uh, author of the newest book, Kabuli, the story of heart-driven diabetes alert dog, as well as the owner of that dog, Kabuli, in a minute. But it just seems to me like you you were the right age for that book when you were first diagnosed <laughs> with diabetes. So much has changed. So I thought Probably. you would love something like that. No, well, I, I would absolutely just, love something like that. All right, well, stick around because you're going to want to hear that interview. But first we're going to play a song called I Refuse to Be Lonely by Philip Hyman, courtesy of Sunny Music. I think she should have gotten a dog, right? I think she refuses to be lonely. She probably should have a dog. So let's listen to I Refuse to Be Lonely by Sunny Music, and we can all think about Tabuli right now or maybe download that book at Amazon.com. Let's listen. Yes, I am. Yes, I'm on my own. 
as I uh, got into it more and more, I discovered facets that I, I hadn't even expected. Uh, Tabuli is a diabetes alert dog, but he's also worked with folks with uh, Alzheimer's and dementia. He's worked with children uh, who have autism or dyslexia. He seems to be a dog who just knows when people need a hug, and he's always there for them. So it's really the, the thing that inspired me to, to write the book was uh, Elizabeth recounting uh, the passing of her husband and how Tabuli's relationship with her husband, Paul, was just so strong and so deep that Tabuli refused to leave his bedside. And after uh, he, was, he was taken from the bedside, Tabuli refused to eat for weeks and had to be hand-fed for weeks by Elizabeth. It's, it's just beautiful how deep uh, the connection was with this, with this diabetes alert dog. And it really was a story that needed to be told. All right. Well, I want to bring in Tabuli's owner, Elizabeth Von Gallagher, to get her side of the story. Elizabeth, welcome to the podcast. So great to have you on the show and to help celebrate the release of this book. Um, to, let's talk about Tabuli because Matt just described Tabuli. It seems like a one of one of a kind dog. Was it an expensive dog to buy? Did you go to a special breeder? Did, how uh, did you get a dog like this? Well, my beloved priest, Father Bart, gave him to me when Paul was still alive because he thought he would be a great companion dog for him because I had been babysitting his dog to bully while he was out of town. So um, it started out, he was a crazy wild dog. I mean, he was a big old Jack Russell. While when Father Bart said, I'm going to give you to bully. And I said, oh, that's so sweet. Closed the door and went, oh, blank. My God, I've got a wild dog. Now what do I do? So um, that's when his journey started in training. Um, he's a very bright dog. He trained very quickly. He loves people. He's just been a, he's been a lifesaver to me. I mean, he just really tunes in. I really feel that he was dropped in from heaven as a dog on a mission. All right, now, Elizabeth, first, I mean, Matt just told us, first this dog was trained for dementia for your husband. Why did you have it trained for diabetes? Were you living with diabetes before you got to bully? How did this all happen? No, actually, to bully started out as part of his training um, I trained him as um, as a therapy dog. He's a registered bonded insured therapy dog who worked with autistic children. And I started a reading program at one of the elementary schools. As Paul's dementia progressed, I trained him to help me with that, where he would wake me up at night if Paul decided to get up and try to go to the bathroom alone or wander. When we'd go out for walks, I would um, attach Paul to Tabuli. And if he was shuffling his feet, I'd say, T, pick it up. And Paul would walk to the pace that the dog set. But I think one of his biggest assets was if we were out shopping and I needed to deal with a clerk or something, I could put Tabuli in a sit-stay, and Paul was tethered to a 22-pound living cinder block. He couldn't, couldn't escape, and I knew exactly where he was. So then after Paul died, the stress of settling the estate and everything brought on type 1 diabetes. And I went, oh, man, this is – I said, we can fix this, right? And – all my doctors were like, no, not exactly. I said, okay, we've got a bright dog. Let's train a dog. So he had 
a dog trainer, Sue Conklin, who's in Simpsonville, who did all of his obedience work, and he had started nose work with her, which is scent training. It's a sport. It's an AKC sport. And I said to her, what do you think about training him as a diabetes alert dog? She said, well, yeah, that sounds good. And she said, there's a seminar in Asheville. Then she looked at her calendar and said, we can't go to that. She said, it's with Debbie Kay, who is a world-renowned scent trainer, diabetes alert trainer. She trains for all kinds of scent work, detection dogs. And I said, well, let's, let's sign up. So she said, okay. And she <laughs> said, you know, she's in West Virginia. I went, I'm game of you. And that's how it started. A year after Paul died, I was diagnosed with this. Nobody in my family has it not even type 2. I also have lupus to go with this. I just heard the last person speak to that. But um, so Sue and I went off to meet Debbie Kay, who you know and who is wonderful, and that's where this, that's where it began. And he, he's been wonderful with it. So when I, you know, I'd how, known Matt. How does a diabetes, what does a diabetes alert dog do? I think a lot of our listeners are wondering what that dog does for you. Well, some trainers train to highs and lows. Debbie trains only to lows. So when my sugar dropped, drops, he will start sniffing a pattern he's been taught and poke his nose or lick my hand or do something he normally doesn't do to let me know it's time to check my sugar. In fact, he alerted on me at a training session one day, and I thought, silly dog, I feel fine. And I checked my sugar, and I went, this is nuts. My sugar's at 212. What does he want? So I was leaving to go home anyway, and the training session is only like five minutes away from my house. By the time I got home, my sugar was at 54. He caught it before the meter. He's amazing. Wow. All right. But he also All alerts right. now, on other people. Uh, wait. I want to ask Pat a question. I mean, Matt a question. Excuse me, Elizabeth. But we're hearing Elizabeth's story. She sounds youthful and full of life, but at the, but I also know that she's not the age of the character in your book. What made you choose to make this a children's story and focus on a child? Right. Excellent question. So, uh, no, there's there's a slight age discrepancy uh, between the real Elizabeth and the, uh, the fictionalized 13-year-old Elizabeth. And the reason we decided to do that is because we wanted to make the book uh, appeal to a younger audience. You know, a, a lot of a lot of kids who are dealing with, with juvenile diabetes uh, are, are struggling. They're struggling to, to embrace their, their new unique identity. They're struggling to uh, make sense of these changes in their lives. And Tabuli went through a similar, uh, a similar journey. You know, he, he had a very tragic beginning before he came into Elizabeth's life. He had to make sense of that. He had to uh, embrace his unique identity. He had to learn to live life to the fullest and follow the adventure wherever it leads him. And I feel like a, a lot of kids who are struggling uh, with juvenile diabetes may be going through the same thing. And so we wanted this book to appeal to the broadest audience where the most good could be done. And so I, I think we've accomplished that because uh, the kids who have, who have provided feedback love it but also their parents and, and people who are older who have diabetes seem to uh, relate to it as well because there's a cast of characters who are all going through their own journey. So it, it was really just to, uh, to broaden the appeal and do as much good as possible. I love it. And well, who I'm, wants to read I'm a book so about it? talk about it and, and help promote it. It's Tabuli, the story of a hard-driven diabetes alert dog. They could check it out on Amazon. You guys have a website, and both of you – 
may be appearing at Collar Greens Health and Wellness Day on September 29th right there at Central Farm Markets in Virginia. Thank you for being on the show tonight. Uh, so great to hear about it. Continued success with the book launch. Thank you Thank for you having me. Thank you very much, Matt. Matt. All right, we're going to come right back and talk to the Queen Diva about what it's like to perform for the time and wrap this show up with the Year of the Diva. But first, I'm going to play the song that I just can't take off my turntable, Loving You and Losing You, courtesy of Stony Music. Here's Phyllis Simon on one of my favorite tunes. Enjoy. In the middle of my life, I had nothing to lose, no one to love. Now it's you I'm thinking of. And the intro on that song is amazing. Please go download that song right now, Loving You and Losing You, uh, courtesy of Sony Music. My next guest is performing Strength of a Woman, a Phyllis Hyman tribute, the only Phyllis Hyman tribute show supported and approved by the Hyman family and friends. I love it. She's been doing it all over New York City, including 54 Below and Feinstein. Uh, please welcome to the show, first time ever, Queen Diva. Hello, Queen Diva. <laughs> Hello, hello. Thank you for having me. Uh, I mean, if there's ever a guest to be on Divabetic, it's Queen Diva. And and we have met before. You actually came to our first Sandross Festival weekend and did some performing with us with our good friend Catherine Schuler. We uh, we want to thank you for that. That, that was amazing and, and being a part of that. Let's talk a little bit about Phyllis Hyman because the story of her committing suicide is very, was very shocking and surprising to fans, and we heard earlier from Allison Williams how shocking it was even for friends and family. I would think kind of dovetailing into this legacy, you would have to speak to that, and, and I think that's probably where the success of your program has come from, right, is paying tribute to her as well as raising awareness for mental health issues. Talk a little bit about how you got involved in this project and why you're so passionate about it? Well, I had always been a Phyllis Hyman fan. I had people always from the time I was in high school tell me how much I look like her, how I remind them of her. Um, and so I started to study her music and um, and just really internalize it. When I was in college, I went to Prairie View a University in Prairie View, Texas. Um, I studied voice, and while I was there, she was one of my, you know, one of my strongest musical influences while I was studying music. And so over the years, I wasn't sure how I wanted to give, you know, do a show and tribute to her. It took a long time for me to get it together because I didn't really know how to go about it, but I knew I always wanted to. And it wasn't until I moved back to New York seven years ago that I said, you know what, it's time for me to do this because it wouldn't go away. It's one of those things where you think about it and you say, oh, you forget about it, but it keeps coming back. And so I 
finally decided, let me find out how I can do it. So I, I went to a showcase um, at a theater that's no longer around. Um, shout out to uh, Metropolitan Room, um, Bernie and Joanne. They allowed me to sing at their showcase um, for up-and-coming singers. Um, they loved my voice. They said, you can do a show, do an hour set, whatever you want to do. I said, whatever I want to do. They said, whatever you want to do, Queen Diva. I said, well, I'm loving that. I'm loving that. So that was my opportunity to finally do my Phyllis Hyman tribute. And I was determined to not only research songs that I wanted to do for her, but I wanted to research um, her background and what she loved, what she didn't like, the songs that she sang. Um, I even reached out to everybody that worked with her that I could catch up with. I, I reached out to her costume designer. I reached out to some of her musicians. I reached out to um, Allison Williams, and a uh, shout-out to her. Um, she's definitely given support uh, for me over the years in doing the show. And I just wanted to capture, um, you know, just the essence of Phyllis when I perform, but also me. You know, I didn't want to get lost in trying to mimic her or be a cartoon character of her. I wanted to be Queen Diva does Phyllis Hyman, and that's what it solely is. And so my passion was uh, when I was looking and researching her, her background, that's when I found out she had mental illness and that it was bipolar and that she had tried to commit suicide prior to her actually committing suicide and um, and that the, it's a family history. They, they have a whole family history of mental illness. So it just dug a little deeper, dug a little deeper. I said, you know what, I need to make this, um, I need to become an advocate for this because in the African-American community, we don't talk about it. We just don't talk Absolutely. about it. If it comes up, we sweep it under the rug. We sit all day a little touched and keep it moving. I'm like, no, enough of that. we got too many people in our families, in our community, that are not taking care of their mental health. It is just as important as your physical health. And so I said, well, let me find out more. And so I got information from the uh, National Alliance on Mental Illness, and I became an advocate with them. And then I went to the American Foundation of Suicide Prevention. I became an advocate with them. And so the more that I learned about those two causes, it really just empowered me to want to sing more and share that information at each and every show that I have. And and the reason why the cause is does the music help? Does her music help you tell the story? I recently saw the Share Show on Broadway, and it was mm-hmm. really fascinating how a lot of the lyrics to her song kind of propelled the story forward. I'm fi- I'm wondering if if there's uh, if any of her music helps you delve into this. Did, do you find that? Have you found that in your in your research? Oh, absolutely, because. Absolutely, because her songs were, first and foremost, were love songs, but they're also relationship songs. So it's shared about her ups and, ta- her ups and downs with love. And you can uh, definitely tell that she loved love, but love didn't love her. And, and that's what those songs were really about in, in every song. And she would just dive right in. If you listen to her songs from when she started in the 70s to her last song that she recorded, um, she dove right in, and it, it really was her. Every songwriter, they wrote those songs specifically for her, and it truly was her story. She was a like a storyteller of song. That's what I. That's what I. You know, would say that she and was. And I heard she was. She was attracted to storybook kind of story songs. So, what's your favorite Phyllis Hyman song? And then, what's your favorite Phyllis Hyman song to perform? Oh my goodness! I knew you was gonna ask me that. Okay, so my favorite Phyllis Hyman song is the one that she sang on uh, Sophisticated Ladies. I love the way she sang In a Sentimental Mood. I love the way she sang that song. It was just so beautiful and so real. 
when you're talking about how somebody just loves you so much you feel so sentimental about it. That's my favorite song that she sings. And the favorite song that people like to hear me sing, I made it my last song, was Meet Me on the Moon. Every time I sing that song, it just totally brings people to tears and they're at their feet. They're they're totally on their feet with that with that song. And and I just added that song actually recently. It I didn't even have that at the beginning of when I started doing the show six years ago. I added it two shows ago and now I cannot not sing it. People that heard of me and heard that song, they said, No, you must sing Meet Me on the Moon before we end the show. I said, Okay, okay. <laughs> All right, so wait, tell us where people can find out more about um, your tribute show to Phyllis Hyman, Strength of a Woman. Oh, definitely. Um, I'm on Facebook. If you go to um, S-O-W-P-H-T, Strength of a Woman, I'm on Facebook. You can also go, I just set up my website. Um, the production company that I, uh, produces this is Soul Divas Not Out Presents. So you can just go to souldivasnotoutpresents.com, and you can see information on there. And um, and my social media is um on Twitter, is uh, Soul Diva's Not Out Presents, is S-D-N-O Presents, or Queen Diva, Queen Diva underscore underscore. Um, so you'll find me. You'll definitely find me. And right now we're just, we take a break. Uh, we want to do some recording, and uh, we're looking to go to bigger venues. So, you know, that's next on the agenda for Strength of a Woman, a Phyllis Hyman tribute. All right, hold on. Hold on one second. I'm going to do, I want you to help me introduce our final song of the evening, but before we do that, I just have to give a shout-out to everyone. <clears throat> Thank all my guests for being on tonight's show, <clears throat> including Queen Diva. I guess I need to have mm. wrote, uh, uh, some tea or something, right? And I, I <laughs> want to tell everyone, Queen Diva, you'll love this because we're next, you know, the red curtain has come down. It's coming back up on September 10th because our whole cast and crew will be performing Diva Bedick's sixth annual Diabetes Mystery Podcast entitled Gingerbread Prefer Blondes. We'll be playing the music oh. from Gentlemen Prefer Blondes with Carol Channing. And it's a whole mystery podcast, radio podcast, that will be happening next month. You don't want to miss it. It's something we all look forward to every year. You can also visit Diva Bedick on Facebook, Twitter, and also check out my videos at Mr. Diva Bedick's YouTube channel. All right, so <clears throat> every diva has an entourage, and I'm so glad to be part of yours, Queen Diva. Thank I want you. to work with you to introduce my, this is my song, and you have an interesting, uh, a little bit of tidbit about why she performed this song. It's called Old Friend. It's on the oh, yeah. Central Philistine. That's a uh, favorite, courtesy. too. Yeah. Which one? Old, so, Old Friend is a favorite of people for me to sing and Bet You By Gollywell. Those two people love to hear. Yeah, that's one of their favorites, yeah. And and why did Phyllis, what did Phyllis Hyman, did she like to perform that song and did she dedicate it to anyone when she used to do it? Oh, yes. She loved that song. It was written for her specifically by Linda Creed, who had died before she finished recording it. And she would always dedicate that song to her family, her friends, and especially those who had died from AIDS um, back in the early 90s. And it would really choke her up every time she would sing it. Well, I thank you for introducing. I just want to say before we played and close out the show, you were I was so great to have you on. I want everyone to know that this month I'm also going to be raising money for AIDS awareness with my annual uh, sixth annual Sangria Showdown here in New York City. Find out more about that on my oh. Instagram. But finally, here we go. Here's um, my favorite Phyllis Hyman song of all time, Old Friend, courtesy of Sony Music.
Okay. 